this afternoon it's the discourse 121 from middle length discourses this is the uh, shorter discourse on the emptiness I'd like to give a general overview and uh, exploration of this particular discourse please feel free at any time to uh, raise or ask a question as I speak along and I'll endeavour to touch on some of the main and significant points which come through this uh, discourse. In another place in the Pali text, the Buddha is asked, what is the abiding place of the wise? And his response was, emptiness, shunyata. So, any teachings on uh, emptiness have a very important, uh, profound uh, significant, uh, significance and is one of the key areas for any kind of deep inquiry. Quite often when we are first exposed to uh, teachings on emptiness it's a little bit baffling for the mind to be able to make any sense of or comprehend. Sometimes as well we associate emptiness with a kind of negative or despairing uh, feeling I'm feeling really empty uh, inside. This has certainly nothing to do with the fulfillment of all spiritual aspirations. So it's rather important that we leave out of it any kind of unpleasant, painful, negative uh, association. Far from it, uh, uh, in fact. And then uh, the Buddha, pointing to uh, emptiness, goes, as it were, via the way of the expiration of time. And he points out to, to us some fairly obvious things which sometimes we hardly realize or reflect upon. And he begins by stating a very simple, clear truth. That which is not present shouldn't disturb us. That which is present in the Dharma language, and feel, say, feel free to interrupt any time, Present in the Dharma language is that which is immediately accessible to our eyes, ears, through the senses. So the present moment is this moment which I can see, hear, smell, taste and touch. This is regarded as the present moment, the present view. That, so he says, that which is not present in this moment should not disturb us. Yet somehow or other, We've got ourselves into such a convoluted mess, <laughs> inwardly, that so often that which is not present <laughs> does disturb us, and and that then gives consolidation to the field of time. I lose, as it were, contact with the present moment through my immediacy of my senses, and feels like the past is coming in. It's having some impact, and I'm disturbed about what I did yesterday. 
I'm disturbed about what happened last week, last year, last decade, and if I'm a good Buddhist, last lifetime as well. <laughs> and similarly, I find myself being disturbed about, you know, will I wake up tomorrow because I'm getting an hour's less sleep, or how will it be next week, or what I'm going to do next month, or next year, or if I'm another good Buddhist, what's going to happen to me in my next lifetime, since all those things I've done in this lifetime, whatever. So he says, that which is not present should not disturb. Does that also mean that though, which is not present in space as well as time? Right? <coughs> All right, <coughs> very good. Is on the other side of the world, yes, oh, nice, nice, very good point. So also, one also gives consideration to space as well. So since the here and now is defined by what's immediate to my senses, what's outside of my immediate senses also shouldn't disturb. So something that's uh, going on which I cannot see nor hear nor smell nor taste or touch shouldn't disturb but again we absorb various impressions they meet with various latent tendencies uh, inside and then something that's going on el- elsewhere what our friends or family are doing or what's going on in some other part of the planet or whatever it may be seems to enter it seems to have some blocking impact on the present moment as defined in the Dharma and the effect of that is that we feel disturbed. So the meeting of time, called past and future in this case, and space somewhere outside the immediacy of my senses seems to disturb us. But, um, yes. How do you find senses? I mean, one would be disturbed by a tsunami knowing that it existed. So, again, the member disturbance in this case is not being able to see clearly. So, there is a situation which happens in space and of course time somewhere else, the the nightmare of the tsunami, and having come back from uh, India uh, last month, having spoken with some people in uh, Budgaya and uh, here uh, in Saranath and people who are in the region of Thailand or in uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Tamil Nadu, of course, and listens, listens to these accounts. What happens when we are disturbed in an unhealthy, unsatisfactory way, it doesn't help anybody in a tsunami. It's, but when the heart is touched, when there is clarity, from that will naturally come kindness and love and compassion. This is not called disturbance. This is not called disturbance. So we're talking about what is causing problem and suffering for us. And we can easily generate for ourselves through past and future, through other places, disturbance, suffering anguish for ourselves does it help does it help anybody yeah so that so he responds let's see in terms of let's let me take it a little bit further so then we say look here is this present moment and this is some of the important aspects here of what emptiness the understanding of emptiness is this present moment 
is empty of everything else. It's going to take some attention from you in this listening here, believe me. This present moment, that is, that which I see, hear, smell, taste and touch. So the immediacy of that right now is, here's a group of people in the room, and I see the various forms, shapes, colours, I recognise you. I can hear the, the, uh, the seagulls floating around uh, Brighton, um, and some people maybe get disturbed by that when they do their little droppings on certain <laughs> people's heads in, in Brighton, whatever it might be. Um, I can hear, and if I get a little thirsty, I'll uh, drink some uh, water, etc. So, what is outside the immediacy of this called the sense is that everything else is in the absence of this, this moment. There is this moment, and in this moment, what is here, in this moment, to my senses, is not found anywhere in the entire universe. So, as the Buddha is pointing out, pointing out here, that go on. What is found in this immediacy of this expression of diversity is not found anywhere else in the entire universe. It is not possible. Yeah. In, in one moment, if I am only hearing that seagull, yes. so does that mean that I'm not seeing anything, or I'm not, touching, I'm not aware of my touching or whatever, so that moment is empty of the touching, the seeing, and the other senses also? Um, when I was a, a monk, it's a good question, when I was a monk, well, monks don't argue, well, they do, actually. <laughs> and one of the frequent times, this is some, from the dedicated meditators here, not, not uh, uh, theoretical. There are some schools of thought in the Theravada tradition which has a strict interpretation of what moment-to-moment -moment existence is. This is the Theravada tradition, not in the Buddha's teaching. And the strict moment-to-moment -moment interpretation is, in the moment that I hear, I don't see, smell, taste, or touch, or think. In the moment that I see, in that very moment, I don't hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. And that it is so fast that one is going rapidly from one moment to the next, and every sense door is happening subsequent to the next one. Yeah. The, and then other of us, including moi, say, no, no, no. Consciousness has the capacity in everyday sense, in everyday ordinariness, to <coughs> be able to experience the present moment in which the consciousness <coughs> says, I'm looking at you and I'm listening to you at the same time. I don't feel there is a break between my looking and my listening. And the Buddha has tended to take the more conventional understanding of being present which allows seeing and hearing 
you know, or and sometimes it's disapproved of in the mindfulness world. I never know why. Why can't we just have breakfast, read the morning newspaper, <laughs> and listen to the news at the same time? And what's wrong with that? You know, etc. But this, no, 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 no. That's not doing one thing at a time. You see, this is the, the, the tight school. I'm in the more. You know, enjoy life school, and uh, look at and look at life school. Oh, I'm sure it's the same story. Just was referring to. So, so there, therefore, to repeat the little, the, the point uh, I was making a, mo- a moment or two ago, that in the 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 teacher tip, there is there is only what is present in this moment, and in this moment as defined, it is empty of everything else. So everything else is outside my immediacy of my senses, is not this moment. It's not this. It can't be. Please. You you mentioned uh, uh, sight and hearing and what about the the sixth Buddhist sense, the, the mind? Yeah. So in that so, in the, some of you will know, the Buddha's referred to the six uh, uh, senses, and that there's the five, which we normally agree, and the sixth one is the object is what's going on in the inner life. So, just as I can see, and I can hear, and I can see what I see, I can see what I hear, so to speak, that there's the capacity to be able to see the object called inner life, called personality, called feelings and thoughts. And they can be just as clear to me as a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste and a touch there. And this whole event which is going on, that means the objects of interest, as they are in the immediacy, put this together, cannot get repeated. And therefore, as I mentioned, what is happening outside, the first point is, why should it disturb us? How have we got ourselves that what doesn't exist for us in this moment seems to get the capacity and the authority to disturb? So those who have um, some kind of um, um, like blind people or deaf people, they are closer to emptiness. The Buddha was also asked this question two and a half thousand years ago. And, how, and I, I must say, I do notice that most questions <laughs> have been asked from poor Dharma teachers for generations and those of us who are in love of the tradition, particularly the Buddha. The Buddha said, if this was true, that those who were blind and deaf were closer the understanding of uh, emptiness because they haven't got the problem of seeing in him then then maybe we should just take out our eyes and ears because it would <laughs> etc it's just that we touch which we touch on we give authority to what we see in here to disturb that's the problem <laughs> that's why the deaf and the blind are no easier or better off than we are so so one is aware or conscious of what is not present and what remains is just what is present. 
So what is not present, this moment is empty of all of the other. Empty of everything outside it. But it was just this moment. So it would look like, when we look at this moment, we say, well, since this moment is... Um, of this moment and everything else is not this moment, everything outside of it is not this moment, it would look like this moment, this is a, this is a, a, a common spiritual view, remember, therefore there is only this moment. Since there's no moment, nothing outside at the moment, because it's empty of, then there is just this moment, this is it. And there are those I hear it quite regularly, east and west, it's common in satsang, who will say, there is only this moment, and therefore there is the eternal now. Excuse me while I... <laughs> and because there's no past, there is no future, there is just this moment, and it's, and it's unchanging, and our true nature is in this moment. This is called the eternal now. And therefore, it will be said in um, some schools of uh, Advaita that, yes, totally let go. There is no past. It's all a dream. There is no future. It's all a dream. There is only this moment, and this moment is it. And therefore, that's where we find our peace and our liberation. If this is the case, if this is true, this moment has this is important here, its own existence. It has no bearing to what was, has no bearing upon what will be, it has its own existence. Because one's cut off the past, one has cut off the future. If it has its own existence, then it's true. It's eternal. Which means, you and I are in this moment forever. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> As much as I like you, <laughs> the idea of spending an eternal existence in this room with you <laughs> is not very attractive. But, I, so, but does that follow it's the same moment, or is the only continuous thing is that it's now, not that it's the same now? Listen again. The view is expressed. I've listened to it for long enough, over years, there is no past, there is no future, therefore why be disturbed by it? There is only the power of now. There is only the present moment. This now is eternal. Since there is no past, no future, it can't change. Only that which is changing can have a past and future. And therefore, one would have to draw the conclusion this is the Buddha's teachings of emptiness here. He's not teaching this ideology of an eternal moment, eternal now. It means we'll be frozen in this moment. Which means we are, abs we are immortal. Yeah. Being mortal is not very pleasant. Being immortal, I would think, would <laughs> be the worst nightmare. <laughs> because we would be trapped in this moment and nothing would change. We'd be frozen in the moment. Because it's eternal. So Buddha's teaching is not giving teachings which says no past, no future, and only now. Not giving this teaching. 
Does, yes, please. Go on. Does that relate also to the idea of a fixed self, not just, you know, yeah. you're suggesting yeah. now that this person is immortal, you know, mm-hmm. but does it also relate to this idea of a soul inside that doesn't change? Exactly. The whole view is wrapped, exactly wrapped up, and therefore one says, a little bit of repetition here, if there, there is a, a view which is uh, uh, expressed, I even hear Buddhists express this, that there is the true self. And the true self is uh, permanent. And therefore, if there's a true self, there has to be the not true self. But we don't know the not true self, so we've got to find the true self. My question would be, and who is deciding this? <laughs> who is deciding this is the true self, which is permanent, unchanging, always present, and therefore immortal, indestructible? And who is the one inside who is saying, well, this, whatever's going on inside of me, is the not true self, the less than true self, the hopeless self, the false self, the illusory. Who's the voice that makes this distinction? Hey. Yes, please. I understood it as meaning that what you refer to as the wise teacher, the inner voice. I, I don't see it as eternal or, or fixed. No, it, it's... In using the word, the, uh, uh, the voice of wisdom, in no, or the inner teacher, in no way, no way whatsoever, would it be appropriate to give uh, to that some kind of grandiose mm. ultimate statement, like my true self, or uh, uh, whatever. I just say, feel with regard to the view, any view about self, what's it emerging from? And how very easily there is a construct that takes place which says, oh, this is my true self. And it goes a little step further. It's then called my soul. It's called something which is permanent and something which is unchanging. Sometimes this is referred to as pure consciousness. So everything is changing around me my eye gets lost in my feelings and thoughts and my moods and my perceptions and my body. I get lost in all of that. But when I find my true self, then I come back to pure consciousness. And this consciousness is unchanging. It is permanent. And therefore it won't die. Therefore, I'm still in one hell of a mess. Because, all right, all the objects are changing. That means you poor lot, because you're objects of interest. All my feelings and thoughts are changing. My body condition is changing. Yeah? My moods and my states of mind are changing. But my consciousness, my true self, this is totally permanent, is unchanging. So I'm going to spend the rest of eternity totally alone with my permanent consciousness (laughs) 
I don't find it very appealing, frankly. But <laughs> others may do so because of that. Look, Christopher. Uh, Christopher, one question. You said that which is not present. Mm -hmm. and you define present everything that is immediately accessible to the senses. Yes. So that which is not present in this moment should not disturb us. Yes. But with this definition, I find that could be enough in the present that disturbs oh, us. Oh, plenty. Why, why do we have <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> plenty. <laughs> I, I quite agree. <laughs> you know, I think many of us would be very happy <laughs> if only past and future disturbed, <laughs> but in the present there was no disturbance. Mm. But, I mean, wouldn't that encourage us to be here and now? <laughs> <laughs> well, past and future di disturb, okay. But if I'm present, I won't be disturbed. <laughs> but unfortunately, life doesn't quite fit in with our great ideas. So, which comes back to, again, the point we're trying to have some sense and understanding of emptiness liberate ourselves from all these views of being immortal, eternal now, etern permanent consciousness, true self. This is all religious beliefs that have built up, still getting expressed frequently, east and west. Many spiritual books you pick up, you'll see these views constantly being expressed and the Buddha's teaching emptiness of it all. So, let me... Anyway, let me flow on here. Yes, please. Ask another question. You could, may do. Oh, it's a different from what I found hard to articulate. But yes. when I've been in very expanded mind states, mm. it's felt like there's just knowing that it's not my knowing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took this up a bit with John Crook, but it wasn't really the time to really go into it. But it, it felt like it wasn't my knowing, but I don't. But then, I mean, I couldn't give it another location. I couldn't say. But I don't know, kind of a kind of universe knowing, but I don't know if, it's, uh, in any way, say that's a true thing. But I it wasn't me knowing. I mean, the, the way you just described it is, you know, the, the, the me inside, that the true self, isolated, mm. I see it as the opposite. I see that that's what, where the connection is. If, let's say that we all have this, this true, you know, we, we all we'll have this untrue self which we all know about, and we have this true self mm. which is much more difficult to access. And, and if that's part of a kind of universal consciousness or whatever, that, that's what connects us. So, so we, we're not, if we, ideally, if we're all in touch with that, we wouldn't be isolated, but of course, mm. we don't live in ideally. Um, in the re response to the um, uh, points here, as far as the expanded consciousness, I quite agree that there is a seeing and knowing which in the moment helps to free us from our usual rather confined and limited viewpoint. And I quite agree as well that in such seeing and knowing there isn't a sense that it's my seeing or knowing or that I see. And I think the language of just seeing and knowing is enough rather than to put it into a kind of metaphysical, mystical category, universe is seeing and, and knowing, or, or whatever. I think it's healthier and clearer to keep out universal language there, or personal, just to keep it out, just that there is a uh, seeing and, and knowing. Is that there's an idea of big self and 
It's another area, and, I, and to that I would say yes. But that, similarly, with regard to uh, consciousness there, that it's having a sense of consciousness and giving it some kind of permanence or status of true self, two questions still arise for me which are intended to undermine the position. One uh, question is, this consciousness which, I, which some may claim as being my true self, my true nature, who I really am, is not able to be independent of its environment. To give it a transcendent status when it's quite clear for us that our consciousness is affected in various ways by body, organic life, environment, feelings, perceptions, thoughts and states of mind. It's not something outside of it. You and the, the consciousness is affected by events and the condition of your consciousness and my consciousness also affects events. So in the dynamic that's going on, including in the present moment, it is not something stagnant. It, the moment is not frozen. It's not our experience. And the second question also that goes with it, and it's a very important question, who is the one that is deciding in the duality, this is true self and this is not true self. Who is this extra person? <laughs> is this the voice of the true self? Or is this the voice of the non-true self? If one takes up that duality, or the big self, or the little self, uh, etc. Um, remember this has all been re recorded. And if any of the, those good people, the Zen master, John Crook and John Peacock, or <laughs> they, may, they, they may profoundly disagree with what they're... So I would rather keep with what you say. Not because we just read the Kalama Sutra yesterday, and we're not having it soon. <coughs> we're trying to keep as much as we can. But I found it helpful. Go on. Vinyana... <laughs> <laughs> In a way, consciousness is always consciousness of. Yes. So the idea of pure consciousness without an object mm. is a kind of Hindu mm. Advaita idea. That, that um, according to the Buddha, consciousness was always consciousness of. And mm. that somehow if, if we keep that sense, then it maybe helps us not to get caught up in this idea of an eternal pure consciousness. It, it does. And while paying respect to the experiences that, say, Jiva and others of us have had, in which at times there is valid, authentic experiences of consciousness, which the objects mm. have kind of disappeared, and there is a genuinely formless sense, and consciousness truly has incredibly expanded. Mm. That may happen spontaneously, in meditation, in uh, nature, 
and dare I say, in drugs. But there, but then to take from that experience and then to elevate it into a, the supreme achievement of the human beings to realize this consciousness as a supreme end is a, a, a conclusion too far from the Dharma standpoint. Because I sometimes, if, if in that sort of, from that experience, if I had gone to an Advaita teacher and they'd said it was an experience of pure consciousness, I would have been tempted to believe it. But then when I think about it, there is still an object, even if it's just the stillness and the expansiveness. It, it, I think it, that's not it is, and I agree with that. Even in a really pure consciousness, yeah. and I think one can use the word pure consciousness in its infinite formless sense, Still, it cannot exist by itself, and therefore it requires, what should we say, silence, it might require profound stillness, the coming together, numerous other conditions, and wow, and just the sense of consciousness. I mean, just the taking of a walk outside at night, and with our little eyeballs on a clear night, to be able to open the eye and that consciousness through this little instrument can see billions of miles up there and it is it's awesome it is awesome to do that this little instrument can so this is extraordinary wonder that we have as a human being and yet not to give make consciousness the supreme thing which makes it exist by itself having its own existence, that means true existence, independent of everything else. There's no proof of it. There's no proof for it. Christopher, yeah. I'm still a little bit confused. Alright. I, I said it was going to be difficult, and the difficulty it will be. I yeah. totally understand everything you are saying now. All right. It feels quite, not totally, but I can mm. understand. But, I've just been on a retreat with a teacher that is both Advaita and insight meditator. And although that teacher explained that they were this and they were using, you know, many different yes. methods, it felt okay to a certain point. Mm. And then it became confusing mm -hmm. in meditation because there was a, a suggestion to question who is experience this, mm. who is looking, who is thinking, and then there was also the suggestion to use emptiness. It felt muddled up. Mm. It, yeah, it wasn't... Gone. It didn't feel clear. It felt like it has to be one or the other for me. Sometimes, and this is where the, a little bit of the challenge is, there's only one truth. There's no second, third, fourth, fifth truth. And an important element of that is the truth of our experience. So sometimes we do get used to the truth of our experience at the relative level. Looking at issues which disturb us with regard to past, present and future. And coming to some insight, calmness and understanding. The world of meditation, mindfulness, practice, exploration, etc. Then, 
at times when the inner life is relatively calm and clear and we're not too much disturbed either by past or future or by present that could be a really precious and opportune time for some reflection where the interest is not in what is disturbing me or what's not disturbing me or whatever but some kind of inquiry and investigation into how is this world? What is the nature of things? What is emptiness? And that requires, as we're doing uh, right now, looking into things more uh, significant in a way than just what our personality is like and how we are uh, in, in the world. It takes a skill uh, from the standpoint of Dharma teaching or sharing or Kalyana Mitta to know and to make to be able to make the distinction between relative truth of practice in time and progress to dropping all of those constructs to looking directly at emptiness or at our understanding of what it is to be in this world yeah. It is confusing if it's kind of going backwards and forwards between the two. I felt that it was. Yeah. It was inviting emptiness and then labelling it yes. immediately. And I didn't like it. No. Because it made me feel... I don't know. And therefore, in such things, if one feeling difficulty or confusion, we must, as much as possible, come back to our own experience there. And... That may be that at the time, for the, maybe the condition of the inner life, that's confusing. It may be with regard to the, the teacher, his, her, my skill, or lack of it, etc. So all of that is happening. Because we're trying to look at this dynamic. So let, let me go on a little bit more. So then he says, this moment, sight, sound, smells, taste and touch, which we call the here and now, also doesn't have its own existence because it is reliant on the perception of it. So, I am a poor human being, sitting over in this very spot, and my perception of what's out there, or what's out there is dependent on my perception of it. My, what's out there doesn't have its own existence, it's reliant here. If I was another sentient being here, what should we say, uh, um, an ant, the percentage, the perception would be completely different. And your perception from where you are sitting of what's here in this moment is also different but it's not absolutely different how could it be? but it's not absolutely the same either emptiness, emptiness, emptiness Are yes something could only exist in, only exist in perception so something no. could exist in somebody's perception 
that doesn't exist in somebody else's perception and they can be standing up and looking at the same sky? That, in the looking at the way that we perceive, we often have the view that what exists out there is utterly independent, objective, and it's just that we look at it differently, or the same. So I might look in here, and one person may say, what a, uh, what should I say, an artistic, collective, bright and beautiful, with lovely colours, etc. Another person may look in here and say, what an untidy lot of people. <laughs> what a mess this room is in. Another person may perceive and say, oh, we are all children of God. So this is to treat us as infants, of course, which not many of us would be happy about. And somebody of us may just say, well, we're just bundles of atoms <laughs> sprouting on top, not a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> Some nod their head with furious, <laughs> furious agreement on the last point, you see. Who is to claim what's the reality out there? Who is to claim? So, therefore, what's out there is not separate from the perception, it's not independent of it, but it's not made by it either. I don't make you, I don't sit here and say I've created my own reality. <laughs> I don't look up at the night sky and say, do you know I <laughs> created all those stars up there. <laughs> so it doesn't have its own existence. It, called what's out there, is empty of its own existence. It's revealed through the condition that the perception is in. And maybe, if you and I as human creatures had other senses, which we, of course we don't even know about, our interpretation of how things are could be completely different. It's just that we have come into this world with these eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and touch, and this is how we interpret the world, and the senses are dependent on the sense objects, and the sense objects, as they are, are dependent on the sense doors and have no independent existence. Yes? Isn't this then a matter of, of our perceptions being conditioned? Mm -hmm. so you and I both look at Jackie, we both look at the same thing. This is saying something about the perceiver, Jackie. <laughs> Don't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Uh, uh, you, you, you want to choose somebody else? <laughs> no, no, no. Thanks, David. Right. Thank you. Is it not a? Is it not the problem mm. that, that your and my perception are shaped by our histories and our and everything else? Mm. So we can't possibly see the same thing when we look there, but we are looking at the same thing. If you and I's histories were absolutely identical, or we could drop our own personal perceptions and see past those, what we would see the thing the same thing. In the Dharma language, 
there is no such same thing. It's a metaphysic. Because I can't get to the same thing. I might use the same words one day and I might change them the next. But I can't say the Jackie who I perceive is different from the Jackie that you perceive but I can't make the claim it's the same. <laughs> How could I? I am influenced, shaped, conditioned by this movement that's going on here as you are. Your experience of Jackie may be quite different from mine. I might see Jackie as Dharma student. You might see her as your as a good friend or whatever. Whatever so she's not different because we know who we're talking about. We're talking about Jackie. Sorry for, for <laughs> <laughs> Don't take it personally. <laughs> but she's not the same. And this is the, the kind of mystery and the understanding of what emptiness is is about. It's not the same and it's not different. It's like that's red. I know that's red and everyone would call it red, but you might see red in a completely different way to the way I see red. You are very dumb. Huh? If you're colorblind, you see it in green. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but we know that we're talking about the same thing. It, it only in a general perception. We agree it, with this picture. Yeah. And we make an agreement. This is what it is. But supposing I really put my attention to this, really put it, really put my mouth in this, I might see different shades of red. I might start giving words to those different colours of redness there. So then, I, then I'd say, no, no, it's not red. It's this and it's this and this. And someone else puts a bit closer and say, no, no, it's this and this. Mm-hmm. So there's an agreement which is going on, but in the conventional world it is the agreement. Is it how things really are? And teachings are saying it is empty of its own real existence. So unless we get rid of the senses, we won't be able to experience emptiness? No. (laughs) (laughs) We have made the senses, and we're at the present moment in time, we are regarding the senses as a disturbance. So when we have it as a disturbance, we say, oh, the senses are a problem, so either I've got to go and take my ideas out, or I've got to get rid of my senses. Well then, as some French philosopher said, the only ethical act would be suicide. Because the senses are a problem. And my conditioning is a problem, so I can't get through it, therefore I better <laughs> shoot myself. Didn't some monks start doing it at some stage? I think I read somewhere, <laughs> in a sort of misunderstanding. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, some of the Buddha's Sangha committed suicide at one point because they misinterpreted the teachings on emptiness, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 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 and he gave a teaching on how bad that is. There's another uh, issue we might address it a little later. Let's keep to the pr- present. So are you saying yeah. that there's no objective reality? 
whatsoever. Yes. There's no objective reality whatsoever, and there is no subjective reality whatsoever. You're right. <laughs> and Hang on, don't go away. <laughs> I've, I've just been talking about it for the last 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> but, alright, so, what was the number? 131. So, let me just flow on a little bit, because, uh, so, and then I look, and I say, or we say, this moment doesn't have its own existence. What is it that supports this moment? And what supports, need your attention for this one, what supports this moment is what is not in this moment. <laughs> what supports this moment is what is not in this moment. In this moment, if it did not have support, and therefore was not dependent on, it would be independent, and it could not change. Nothing could affect it. So what's outside of this immediate moment is what makes this moment possible. We could not have this moment without Brighton around us, and the sea, and other places, and everything else. So what is not present makes what is present possible. And therefore, this moment cannot have its own existence because it's, I would say, clearly under the influence of what is not in the moment. So what is not present relies completely on the non-present. Hmm? Well, put it aside for a moment. Alright. So, what's going on around, which is not in this moment, will and does keep influencing this moment. If you and I sit here long enough, the temperature is going to go down, it's going to get a bit colder in here, it's going to get a bit darker, etc. So, this moment doesn't have its own existence. It's empty of its own existence. This moment depends upon what is not immediately present. And this is what we're living with. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to uh, understand uh, how do I have to understand emptiness if it is by experiencing it or by keep talking about it. And the more we keep talking about it, I feel farther away from <laughs> feeling the emptiness. Yeah. <coughs> Uh, so I'm really having a hard time understanding uh, a concept and I'm having a hard time experiencing emptiness. So I don't know <laughs> what, what... You're not alone. 
There is plenty of prayer warnings beforehand, and I've got to repeat them. Sometimes, in the act of listening, things which are said, which are outside of the field of disturbance, will learn, go straight over the head. Abstract, theoretical, and, in, and uh, beyond the brain. Others will listen and say, yes, I'm listening, but in my listening, I can understand it intellectually, it's interesting, but it's not making any difference. Others will say, I'm listening, but I'm not having any feeling connection with it. It is leaving me rather confused, or it feels theoretical, because I'm not having any experience of emptiness. Let me just say one thing here. Whether it goes over your head, only to your mind and your intellect, or to your feelings, none of those three have any importance whatsoever. Chew on that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to carry on. One hasn't understood what emptiness is. Mind is still grasping. Feelings are grasping. Ideas are grasping. Thoughts are grasping. One has not understood emptiness. It's not about having a feeling experience of. It's not having an intellectual understanding of. And it's not that it goes over the head. <laughs> These are the wrong realms. I thought it'd be difficult. <laughs> Just hang in, keep listening, and see if it's possible to keep the interest in trying to understand the incomprehensible. Just please give it up. It's a completely useless effort. Some of you have already given up because I can see your eyes are wandering <laughs> all over, all over the place, <coughs> and uh, and it's uh, a pity. Give up trying to understand. Of course, it's a complete <laughs> waste of time trying to understand it. The mind wants to comprehend, or the feelings want to comprehend, what is utterly incomprehensible. Pardon? Are you claiming? Something that is incomprehensible. Yes. <laughs> How can you do that? <laughs> because. <laughs> Are you speaking about the unspeakable? I am speaking about the unspeakable because I'm, te I'm a teacher of emptiness. I'm teaching emptiness. And emptiness is speaking about the unspeakable, naming the unnameable speaking about uh, comprehension of the incomprehensible. And that this is emptiness. It's not, me not meant to fit in with our petty little mind. I rely on osmosis here. I've never heard the word before in my life, so you, <laughs> I, you, I'll leave you to sort that one out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then the Buddha goes on. Once again, Ananda p appears. Poor devil. <laughs> Seems to turn up at all the wrong places. <laughs> and then he says, he uses rather unusual. He, the, the, the Buddha decides 
decides. I, I don't actually believe in decisions, but the, we could say the, the Buddha encourages Ananda. And this is what it says here. I'd like to know the Pali word, perhaps it's Bhavana, to train himself to abide in pure emptiness. In the face of it, it's a contradiction. How could one train oneself to abide in pure emptiness? But I think sometimes in this. Yes, abide please. Abide means just to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, it's a mm. poetic word for living. Pardon? It's a poetic word for living. Yeah, poetic word for living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dwelling in, resting in. And one of the things which I uh, have noticed in explorations of uh, emptiness, one-to-ones, groups, talks, etc., that it's so problematic for the listening that we end up using our kind of educational mind. We're trying to make sense of something, trying to get it together. And it's a kind of putting aside any hope whatsoever that one can somehow, in one's small, finite, limited, shriveled little self, have a sense of that which has no regard for it. And one begins to sense the emptiness of all the effort to strive, to get it together, to get it coordinated in the mind, to have it clear, have it organized. And this discourse of the Buddha is a ruthless sweeping away of all our efforts, all our striving, all of our trying to put it together. And it's a kind of systematic exploration that here we are living our life and we say, the past disturbs me at times, the future disturbs me. And then we say, why should that which is not present disturb me? Then we look at the present moment and we say, my God, the present moment sometimes disturbs me. I look, seem to be looking at the same thing in one way, next day I'm looking at it a different way. How comes that happen? Did, have I changed? Or did she change? <laughs> or he changed? Or did environment change? Or whatever it was? was I, did it disturb me? Or did I disturb it? Sometimes we say, as one of the teachers, Ajahn Chah, we say, Oh, this sound is really disturbing me. This noise is disturbing me. Is it the sound that's disturbing or more my reaction is disturbing it by calling it a noise? So when we look at the present moment and we see what's happening in the present moment, we are in a position, I can't say it's all because of out there, that we give it self-existence. I can't say it's all because of here. That would be to give it another self-existence. And I find, I'm in the situation, I cannot keep pointing the finger and saying, this, whatever it is, has its own independent existence. 
And I see that even this present moment, which my first perception says, yes, here is the present moment, and it's quite different from everything else that's going on in the entire universe. That I can't find this anywhere else in this entire cosmos. But I cannot say either that this present moment is independent of everything else. Because if it was, it couldn't be affected by it. And therefore, I'm constantly being pointed to the emptiness of a position, the emptiness of my perception, the emptiness of my idea, this is the same. Whatever way I look, I cannot come to any finality because I see the emptiness of the position. And if I understand, which is not above the head, it's not in the head, and it's not in the feeling experience, I understand in some way, there's something beautifully liberating about it. Don't go away. <laughs> then the Buddha says, Um, at the end of the previous discourse, that is, that one shouldn't just go and listen to a teacher and just to listen to the discourses, but one should go for liberation, for direct seeing and knowing. And, then, and the teachings are given wholeheartedly out of compassion for one's welfare, happiness and liberation. Can the teacher supply direct knowing? Excuse me, what? So can the teacher supply direct knowing? Supply it. If a teacher could, it would be the absolute responsibility of the teacher to immediately make emptiness realisable by everyone who comes to listen. So we could forget all this difficulty of life of the meditation cushion, all these other inquiries, meditations, looking at effort, impermanence, letting go, Kalyana Mitha, and all the other things, and we just <laughs> supply the answer. $5,000. Mm. <laughs> that is happy, you've probably heard of this. That, when we were in India, it was $5,000, was it? Yeah. That a three-week course is being offered, guaranteed enlightenment, you pay, guaranteed, and you pay $5,000. So, even the teachings of, uh, with the teachings of emptiness too, one can't give them to another. They are also empty. Who's offering this course? <laughs> so, and sometimes, because of the nature of dependent arising, which reveals emptiness, what I have seen over the years 
that one person can say, Christopher, I feel more confused. I just don't get it. I block out. It's too hard. I'm not sure. And I don't have a clue as to what you're talking about, etc. And then the very same person in another situation at another time is listening and it suddenly is coming incredibly clear beautifully clear and the person knows it they see it and they feel the freedom that goes with it because it is not dependent on the teacher and <coughs> it's not dependent on the situation it is dependently arising just because today uh, for some it makes it's incomprehensible because it is incomprehensible it doesn't no matter what the thought is it doesn't take you one step further away from emptiness nor one step closer this is emptiness it's not that far away it's much closer than under your nose so perhaps in your explanation of emptiness yes. here, you're kind of testing us in terms of our relationship to emptiness and equanimity right here now. My sort of, I can notice my sort of real struggle with emptiness right now, mm. this kind of sense of fullness yes. and, uh, and lack of equanimity in the sense of struggling. Yes, and once kind of has to a little bit to live with the struggle. I mean, uh, <coughs> when I was a monk, let me go back in time a bit. I used to go to see Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I regarded then and still regard too, as the great teacher of emptiness. He used the word voidness because, as I said at the beginning, for some, emptiness has a kind of <laughs> negative view, and not a liberating view, and, and the joy that emerges from it because the struggle is over if one's realized emptiness and I'd leave my hut go down to talk with Ajahn Buddhadasa the great radical teacher of uh, Thailand of the last century he, uh, in constant controversy of a variety of uh, things lived in the forest for more than 60 years one of the great uh, sages of the uh, last century and he would only want to talk about emptiness and I would go down and listen and then after a while he'd <laughs> send me back to the hut and to reflect on it, meditate on it what the hell and then I'd go back again and then just sometimes there'd be those kind of exchanges of, wow, wow. And then I was kind of fired up then, back and meditate and reflect. The challenge here in the West is, of course, our lives are so often so full and busy with doing this and having to do that. There's not real, not easy and often just not the opportunity for real time to meditate and reflect on this and to absorb, absorb it. But, as I said earlier, 
What is the abiding place of the wise? The abiding place of the wise is emptiness. Somehow the discovery of the true nature of things of which emptiness makes all things possible. There can only be fullness because of emptiness. It's not possible to have fullness without emptiness. It's not possible for, to have this sheer breathtaking diversity in which this which is now in this moment for you and I cannot be repeated anywhere else and which this moment itself the extraordinary diversity of this and the extraordinary diversity takes place because nothing has its own existence if it was independent it couldn't change it couldn't move nothing could happen the sheer diversity is because is entirely due to emptiness. It's, it's, it's um, magnificent. I've always struggled with the concept of infinity. Infinity. I can't really conceive of infinity. No, you can't. I take it away from just being a symbol or a word. Mm. I like really struggle with it, and also really struggle with absolute nothingness, mm. void. And Two different things, the same sir. Thing for me, they seem to be the same thing. The um, nothingness is um, is a dualism belonging to somethingness, and it is not emptiness. Not emptiness. Something and nothing, present and absent, are tied up together. What allows it is emptiness. And this, despite the so-called busyness of our lives, which sometimes we look at it clearly and we see, why emptiness have really then is dependent origination. Pardon? Emptiness is is another way of looking at dependent origination. The different it is. De yeah, I prefer dependent arising, but oh, I know origination. Yes, yes, it is. There can be at times invaluable aspects as we've been exploring here of looking at dependent arising so we have the lovely uh, questioning earlier on today and we said what's worth developing what's worth maintaining what's worth overcoming and what's worth avoiding and then we say we look at that we bring some insight and understanding to that and we say okay let me develop that so then that is part of the dependent arising and that's all part of a healthy, conscious life um, making progress as a human being. When we forget the development and the, uh, of that and the effects of that, we see dependent arising. Not out of healthy self-interest, in that case like we did today. We see dependent arising. And as you say, the emptiness reveals it, makes it possible. The significant factor with realising or understanding of emptiness is it is extraordinarily liberating. If it's not liberating, it's not realized. Yeah. With the um, understanding of emptiness, mm -hmm. I mean, it might sound like a bit of a stupid question, but is it all or nothing? Is it like either you understand it or you really don't? Or can you have some sort of measure of understanding or moments of understanding that can? help you in your everyday life 
It's uh, not a stupid question at all. So take no notice of your judgmental voice. It's a very valid question. And the Buddha's addressed it. And the teachings address it. What this means is, it's not an all or nothing, put it simply. There can be a genuine understanding of uh, emptiness and the certain freedom which accompanies it there. And in fact, many things we don't grasp onto. We don't. You think of all the impressions that come to you in a single day, or to me, to any millions of them. Out of that, only some seems to have the capacity, or we give it the capacity, to disturb, which generates dukkha, some suffering for us. So, when we're not disturbed, when we're not caught up, plenty of moments, in a certain way we're seeing the emptiness of it, we're just seeing it for what it is. So, there can be authentic, genuine appreciation of love of emptiness. It's recognized and acknowledged and it's freeing. And at times, the mind in its forgetfulness grasps hold of things and makes an issue out of them. So in that, we're not seeing the emptiness of it. So there may be some greed inside. We're not seeing the emptiness of it. There may be some anger and reactivity inside. We're not seeing the emptiness of it. There may be some delusion and fears. We're not seeing the emptiness of them. So it's not that, having seen emptiness, we don't get caught up in ego and object. But, understanding of emptiness brings such a, a, a quality of consciousness that when, when we are greedy, or trapped in our desires, or uh, negative, or aggressive, or confused, or deluded, all the interest is to see through it, to see the emptiness of it. Because it's not out of any ethic. Oh, it's a bad thing, it's exploiting the world if I'm greedy and selfish. Or it's a bad thing if I'm negative and angry with other people. It's a bad or it's a psychological problem if I'm fearful and anxious. It's just that one knows these disturbances is, is being given a substance or a reality to them which they don't have and therefore is inhibiting seeing clearly. So it's not out of ethics of being trying to be a good person, or a nice person, or a clear or wise person. It's false. It's a fiction. And the seeing through it sees the emptiness of it. So, yes, it uh, can be much realization of emptiness, deep appreciation of it, and still at times having to deal with the so-called poisons of the mind. So is liberation, mm. or at least maybe this is partial liberation, I'm not sure, but... Rather a long... Um, <laughs> is it... <laughs> we're still getting into groups. <laughs> uh, is it that not so much that these poisons of the mind never arise, mm. but that there's always knowing that this isn't really truth of things? Yeah. And I... I mean, again, a lot of discussion. I... I'm, uh, yeah. 
such an unwavering fan of the Buddha. So. There are some, I don't agree, but there are some in the uh, Dharma world, Buddhist world, who feel and believe and view from their experience that it is not possible for the human being to be undisturbed or completely free from subtle forms of greed, hate and delusion, the three poisons. That the best we can hope for <coughs> is to reach a point where we're just, we're coming up, but we're not feeding them, we're not reacting to them. And therefore there's a certain kind of detachment from them. And if we understand emptiness or freedom or great clarity or whatever, then they have little grip over us. But Dharma teachings are quite uncompromising in that way. And in that uh, uncompromising expression of the Dharma, human being has the wonderful potential to live a truly liberated life and is just, what shall we say, unfamiliar with greed, hate and delusion. Unfamiliar with the tendencies to become depressed or afraid or unhappy, uh, etc. So the idea of something coming up which I have to deal with may not be the case for those, to use a Buddhist word, who truly descend, gone deep into emptiness. And I prefer to Maybe a little bit romantic for some, or a bit idealistic, or too transcendent. But I feel to compromise and say the best we can get to is that we're not too disturbed by our greed, hate, and delusion. I didn't really quite mean that. All I was right. maybe thinking more about, say, the noble ones, the stream entrants, that they're still supposed to have lust and hmm. ill will. But presumably, when it arises, they're immediately going to see. Yeah. I, I, the Buddha, you know, such a f- profound teaching. Um, I would hesitate with the word immediate, personally. So he is much more generous than the rest of us. He says, for a stream entrance.